Well, I have to say, first thing, that I have to congratulate you because today is an historic day. Today marks the end of our journey through the Old Testament, which is a big celebratory moment, is it not? Yeah, exactly. But I have to confess something. I'm a little disappointed. You know what I'm disappointed about? See, I have this big hole in my soul, Pastor Dave. Where's Ezekiel? Like, we spend 30 whatever weeks going through the Old Testament and no Ezekiel? I know you're thinking the same thing, right? Like, where is it? Right? So, here's my recommendation for next year. The whole year in Ezekiel, people. Are you with me? I, I encourage, let's rise up together. This week, email Pastor Dave. And all it needs, just in the subject line, Ezekiel. All next year, because you know you want it. Like, you got the whole two. And if, okay, so maybe not Ezekiel, but what about like Zechariah? That would be awesome. I mean, there's life changing stuff there, people. We got to do it. <sighs> anyway, today uh, I've decided to spend the whole time on Ezekiel. No, I'm kidding. But wouldn't that be great? You know, that would be awesome. I know you're disappointed. But what I am going to do is we're going to look at. Uh, what we've looked at over the last few weeks, we're going to spend time looking at how Jesus talks about the Old Testament. And specifically, we're going to look at how Jesus talks about our relationship to the Old Testament. I thought this would be an apropos way of ending. What does Jesus have to say about this book and our relationship to it? So I've picked out four passages. So if you would, get out one of these, your Bibles. No comments about yours being bigger than mine. All right. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. And you want to be at verse 17. This is the Sermon on the Mount. For those of you that are with it this morning and can remember, this is where we began this journey through the Old Testament. We're going to end beginning here as well. This passage is smack dab in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a message that Jesus gives to all those gathered around the mountain, specifically his disciples. And I want you to look at verses, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. So follow along. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's Jesus' way of saying Old Testament. Okay, law and prophets. Got it? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. What I want to do with this passage is I want to give you what I would consider subtext. Okay, you've got the text, but there's something going on behind the scenes here, right? Because Jesus is directly talking to his disciples. But he brings in these other guys, right? Scribes and Pharisees. Who are these dudes? These dudes are 
the people who would like spend all their time talking about the Old Testament. That was what they dedicated their entire life to. They, they just read it and soaked in it and wanted it to be like the thing that motivated their life, right? And what does Jesus say here? He looks at regular everyday Janes and Joes and he says, you got to be better than them. What? I mean, that's crazy talk. When, when Jesus that's just insanity. How in the world am I supposed to be better than those guys? That's what everybody's thinking. How am I supposed to understand this book better than they do when that's all they have time? Man, I got to fish. I got to, you know, I got to do all this other stuff. And they, they just sit around and talk about, about it all day. How, how am I supposed to do that? See, I think what Jesus is saying here, we, we have to get a little deeper. We got to get behind the text because it's specifically what the scribes and the Pharisees in particular are doing with the Old Testament that Jesus is taking issue with. And I want to kind of unpack that for you. I've, I've given these some modern day equivalents to try and make it a little bit more understandable. So I'd say it like this. I'd say it Okay, so Jesus says that our relationship to the Old Testament can be like, in Matthew 5, he says, going to a fancy restaurant and ordering Cheetos and Mountain Dew. Can you picture that? Like you go, you sit down, the maitre d' comes, and you're like, yeah, I'd like some Cheetos and Mountain Dew. What's going on? Well, the problem here is that Jesus is saying that's exactly what the Pharisees and the scribes are doing. They can't read the menu. They, instead of turning it, you know, instead of um, the fine wines that the Old Testament wants to serve, they've turned it into moldy pizza, right? That's exactly what he's saying. He's saying they can spend all their time pouring over these texts, but at the end of the day, if they're not willing to come to the text on its own terms, instead of trying to make it fit into their world, at the end of the day, they, they're not going to be able to do it. And I, this is a message that's important for us, because when we come to the Old Testament, we often are guilty of doing very similar things. We want to bring our perspective to the text and make the Old Testament fit into that, right? I mean, don't get me wrong, Read, understanding the Old Testament, reading it, it's hard work. But don't misunderstand what I mean by hard work. I don't mean that there's only a select few of us that can understand it. That's not what I mean. I mean that it's hard work in the sense that there's a lot of things in life that are hard work. But it doesn't mean you don't enjoy doing them. I mean, riding bike is hard work. But a lot of us love to do that. Finishing school is hard work. But we have the capacity to do that. Tending a garden is hard work, but it's rewarding, right? Getting into the text of the Old Testament is a labor of love. And for many of us, it's an issue of, are we willing to pay the price? You can afford it. All of us can afford it. But are we willing to pay the price to learn how to read the menu, right? I mean... Many of us come to the text like the Pharisees, and we have like this gas station palate, right? We only know Cheetos and Mountain Dew. 
we don't even know where to begin with fine wine. And I think that's what Jesus is saying about the Pharisees. He's saying they can do this all day and night, but at the end of the day, if they're not going to start learning how to drink fine wines, they're going to fail. And you guys have to do better than that. You have to understand how important this text is. Okay? So that's number one. That's what I want you to pick out here, that the Pharisees have this gas station palate, and Jesus is calling them to a higher standard. And it's a standard that we all can have. It's not a standard that's beyond us. You can eat food, right? Just what kind of food are you going to choose to eat? And if you're going to stick with, you know, gas station palate stuff, then uh, you're never really going to get the delicacies that the Old Testament has to offer. You know what I mean? Okay. Second, I want you to turn to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, beginning at verse 1, this is a parable that Jesus tells. The parable Jesus is telling is about a wedding feast. I'm going to forewarn you, anytime that you're dealing with the parable, there's a lot of like weirdness going on there because Jesus is telling a story, but the stories are really about something else, right? So anytime you're dealing with that kind of underlayered thing, there's a little bit of like, ooh, that's weird. So I'm going to unpack it for you a little bit, but... Don't get weirded out, okay? That's all I'm saying. Um, Verse 1 of chapter 22 of Matthew says, And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Notice right away, Jesus is comparing, he's telling you, I'm going to tell you a little about the kingdom of heaven, and I'm going to compare it to a king who gives a wedding for his son right? The wedding feast for his son. But they would not come, um, in verse 3, and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Now, this is important. Let me just stop here. Because notice, the king has invited people. When you give a wedding in Jesus' day, you give a wedding just like we do. You send out invitations in advance, right? So the invitations have gone out, People have accepted the invitation. Yeah, I'm coming. And now the day arrives, and they're like, yeah, I got better things to do. I think I'll get an oil change. Now, like, that can't wait a day, right? No, 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 no. See, you've got to understand this. This isn't just any old wedding Jesus is talking about, right? I mean, imagine you getting an invitation to Prince William and Kate's wedding, right? All expenses paid. We want you to be there. Who wouldn't jump on that, right? And you're like, nah, I got better things to do. Thought it was a good idea at the time, but eh, I'm not going to do that. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited. See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything's ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, you think? And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out 
into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his, the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. There's two things happening here. Okay, there's two individuals, right? For, all our, for our purposes, I want you to picture all of those who were invited first as one individual and all those who, and this guy who's actually there now is a second. So there's two things happening here. What's the subtext? The subtext is the invitation. What was the invitation and who was the invitation to? The invitation's the Old Testament. God has sent out the invitation. Jesus is saying, I'm going to tell you about the kingdom of heaven. See, God gave you the Old Testament. He gave you our scriptures. And he said, come on. It's coming. The wedding's coming. You've got the invitation. Jesus shows up, and people are like, I got better things to do. Jesus is like, the wedding's here, guys. You're looking at the groom. Come on. And everyone's like, uh, nah, it's, I got better things to do. No, you, 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 you've accepted the invitation. You say you understand the Old Testament. You say you know what it's about. You're looking at him, and then you're like, nah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that. Right? So there's that first one. There's the first type of person. There's that person who understands, thinks they understand the Old Testament, but once they're confronted with the reality of what it's actually about, they're like, no way, Jose, I'm not doing that. If you, I, I don't think, you know, I don't think I want to go to that party. Second guy, second person, second gal in this story is the person who shows up to the wedding, but they're not in the right attire. Now, this is kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around, right? You're like, give the guy a break. You know, like, so why are you picking on the guy's attire? You know, I can identify with that guy. Like, I don't have the nicest clothes. You know, whatever. I go to thrift shops, whatever. You know, what's what? that's not really what it's about. You, what you have to picture here is more like the guy shows up dressed for a funeral, but he's coming to a birthday party. You've been invited to a birthday party, but you show up thinking that I'm coming to a... I mean, picture someone coming to your birthday party, they're dragging a casket behind them, and they're like, they insist on singing Abide With Me, and like, you know, you're, you're like, what are you doing? I mean, that might work at like an over-the-hill birthday party, don't get me wrong. But if the dude's serious, that's horrible, right? It's basically saying, I don't want to celebrate your birth, I want to pretend like you're dead. That's what you've got a picture with this guy dressed incorrectly. He shows up, and he doesn't understand what he's coming into. He's got it all backwards. It, he's a disaster. He's a train wreck. This is supposed to be celebration, and instead, he's turning it into gloom, doom, and destruction. See, the Old Testament is not a book of gloom, 
doom, and destruction. It's the invitation to an awesome party. Do we think that the Old Testament is the invitation to an awesome party? Or do we think it's gloom, doom, and destruction? Because if, we, if all we think of is gloom, doom, and destruction, we've missed the point of the OT, guys. There's so much more to it, gals. There's so much going on there. And that's what Jesus is trying to say to these people through this parable. Old Testament is not about a funeral. It's about this party, and you don't even want to be there. And if you do show up, you, you act like you're coming to a funeral. Got it? Let's look at another one. Still in Matthew 22. Go to verse 23. So in that instance, Jesus is speaking to like Pharisees and scribes still. In this instance, Jesus is talking to these guys called the Sadducees. Let me give you a little insight into the Sadducees. The Sadducees really only took seriously the first five books of the Bible. They kind of thought the rest of the Old Testament was rubbish. So they are only concerned about the first five books. So when Jesus responds to them, he sticks within their text, right? He sticks in those first five books to make his point. So if you're in 22, you want to be in verse 23. And it says, the same day Sadducees came to him, that's Jesus, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too, the second and third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Notice what Jesus does here. The Sadducees come to Jesus and they say, okay, we got a question for you. Trick question, of course, right? Everyone likes to try and do with Jesus. And they give him this like elaborate, weird thing, right? Okay, so you know this thing that Moses says, well, what about this? If there's a resurrection, how in the world does that work if this woman had had seven husbands and is there going to be like this feud between the brothers? Jesus is like, you morons. He literally, I mean, can you imagine Jesus coming up to you and going, you don't understand the Bible. Because that's what he tells the Sadducees. You don't get it. I mean, in language, that's the biggest dope slap you could get from Jesus, right? Like, you fools. I mean, you got to picture, if Jesus is saying this, picture what's going on in his head. You guys are off base. But before we're too quick to judge the, the Sadducees, we have to kind of reflect on this because What's true of them is true for us. I mean, we do this all the time. We ask the wrong questions of the Old Testament. We want the Old Testament to answer our questions, and it's not the questions it's trying to answer. You know what it's like? It's like this. 
It's like there's a tour guide for the Great Wall of China, and all the tourists are complaining about not seeing the Eiffel Tower. That's what it's like. The Old Testament's the tour guide. I'm the tourist. And like I'm walking around going, where's the Eiffel Tower, guys? This is lame. This is a big wall. This is stupid. I mean, can you not imagine just looking at that person like, what in the world? But we do this to the Old Testament all the time. I mean, we come to Genesis 1, and we're like, I wonder what this has to say about evolution. That's not the question it's trying to answer. Not even close. I mean, we get so hung up on, like, could, could a dude really get swallowed by a fish? Man, the story of Jonah is about something so much more profound than that. Or, or what about, like, I mean, there's all kinds of examples. Like, where are the dinosaurs? Brontosaurus, anyone? T-Rex? Got to be there. No. No. It's not about, we do this all the time. We come to the Old Testament, and we're, like, trying to make it work into our understanding of the world. We have to understand that the Old Testament is speaking into a perspective of its time. And it's our job to understand its perspective, not trying to make it fit into ours. We get into all kinds of trouble by doing that. All right, let's look at one more. This one's in Luke. He's not my father. Okay. Luke 24 love the page turning. It's like people are like opening their Bibles and reading them. It's just great sound. Uh, Luke 24, verse 13. That's where you want to be. This is what's often called the road to Emmaus. You might be familiar with it. Let's read. It says, that very day, two of them were going on to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what y'all talking about? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days, and he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it as the women had, sa- the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken." Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, 
he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So what's going on? Jesus shows up. It's Easter day, evidently. These guys are walking to this town about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they're disappointed. They're disappointed because they thought Jesus would be one thing, and when they're faced with the reality of who Jesus actually was, they, they found it disappointing. And this guy, Jesus, shows up. They don't recognize him. And he's like, do you not get this? This is what it's all about, guys. Do you not? Let me, let me tell you what the prophets had to say about this. I'm going to start with Moses, and I'm going to work all my way up. You've got to understand, I came for a purpose. I came to do something amazing. I came to suffer and die for you, right? So Jesus starts to, like, unpack this for them. Later on, if you continue reading in the text, when they actually realize that it's Jesus, they look at each other and they go, did our hearts not burn within us when he unveiled the scriptures to us? There's an important thing that we have to understand, and it's this difference, I think, between the people living at the time of Jesus who took the Old Testament seriously and us. For them, the Old Testament was the trailer to an epic movie. When they looked at the Old Testament, they saw so much going on there. They saw themselves as part of the story. They thought it was the trailer and the movie was coming to a theater near them soon. That's what they thought. They were like, oh. When they saw the Old Testament, they were excited. They were not disappointed. They were thinking, this is going to be a great story. But then Jesus shows up, and they're disappointed in the movie. They thought the trailer was better. See, the trailer looks something like this. God warned me. He told me to build a boat. God has spoken to me. He will lead us to a new home. He has promised descendants as numerous as the stars. Oh. Ah. Who are you? My name is Moses. God has sent me set you free. The Lord brought us out from Egypt. Promised us this land. Soon it will be ours. Jerusalem, our new home. David, you have forged God's nation on earth. Your son is the promised king of his people. What is his name? 
Jesus. His name is Jesus. See, that's what the guys on the road to Emmaus pictured. That's the story they were, that's the movie they were waiting for. And instead, what does Jesus tell them? He's like, guys, that's not the movie. The movie is about a crucified, died, bleeding Savior on a cross. That's an epic story. And instead of disappointment, by the end, they had had this illumination, right? But they couldn't understand that. When we, read the old, when we read the New Testament and we see people's trying to wrestle with a crucified Jesus, a crucified Christ, they're like, that's stupid. That's a horrible movie. Literally, Paul will say, it's foolishness. It's a stumbling block. People can't accept it. But that's what it was all about. But here's the thing. That's, that's their perspective I have a feeling our perspective's a little different. I don't think we look at the Old Testament as an epic movie at all. I think we treat it like a phone book. I think we're like, it's reference when I need to find something important, right? Go to the A's, go, you know, whatever. That's horrible. The Old Testament is an epic story. The Old Testament is an epic story. It's the... It's the first three acts of the five-act play, right? When we talked about this at the beginning, you've got creation, you've got the fall, you've got the story of Israel. It's the first three acts of the story. And then in the New Testament, you get the other two, Jesus and the church, us. You're part of that story. It's a story about you. In order to understand who you are, you need to understand the story it's telling. I want to summarize these points in the following way. First, I think it's important that we accept the Old Testament on its own terms. We call this context, right? You come to the Old Testament and you need to understand the context. Before you can ever apply anything in the Bible to yourself, you need to understand what the original intent was. Because otherwise, otherwise you risk misapplication. And that's what Jesus accuses the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and you know, everybody with. He's like, you no, 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 you don't understand what's going on here in the text. Before you can do this, you need to understand that. So before you try and do like, well, what is the Bible trying to tell me? You need to understand what the Bible's trying to say to the people it was originally written to in the first place. Second, we need to understand that the Old Testament is filled with grace. I challenge you. Find any judgment, find any condemnation in the Old Testament, and grace is typically always right there close by. Let me give you some examples. Genesis at the fall. Genesis 3.15, what's the first thing God does? He says, Eve, your seed will crush the head of the serpent. That's a promise. That's the gospel. That's grace. Pick another example. How about 
the judgment on the nations. This is one people really like to, to harp on. Like, how could God destroy all these people groups? How could God do all this? You, you need to understand that right there in the midst of that, there was a blessing to the nations. God made a covenant with Israel. It began with Abraham, right? And he said, through you and your offspring, all nations will be blessed. So right there in the midst of judging evil, you have a blessing. Let me encourage you. It is, it is so silly to bring our, first, our 21st century understanding of morality and accuse God of doing something bad. If you don't understand the morality that the Old Testament's written in first, you're, it's like oil and water. I mean, it's very easy to accuse God of doing something evil if you're using 21st century morality. But that's not the morality the Old Testament's written in. So you need to understand that before you can really get all bent out of shape about God judging evil. Just saying. This little thing. You know, um, you can't expect the Old Testament to play by 21st century rules. It's, authority, it's, a, it's authoritative for every century. Do not hear me wrong. The Old, the Old Testament, the whole Bible, it's authoritative for every century. But it was written in a very particular time, in a very particular place for a very particular people with a very particular message. The Bible's not your typical uh, religious book. Most religious books want to be like this universal thing. They want to give general universal principles for all of eternity. The Bible doesn't do that at all. It looks at guys and gals and it says, I'm going to tell you what you need to do. And then we come to it later on and we're like, I don't know if that's what I need to do. Right? Sell everything you own, give it to the poor and follow me. How many of us are jumping up and down? Like, oh, the Bible told me to do it. I mean, we know how to pick and choose that way, do we not? It's the same with the Old Testament. Got to know the context. Got to know the context. I want to invite the band to come forward. And I would just like to conclude by saying the Old Testament is an epic story. What do I mean it's an epic story? It's a story where it's not... It's not a phone book. It's, when you read it, you really got to know where the story's going. I, there's a very wise man who once said, the Bible is not meant to be read. It's meant to be reread and reread and reread. We start with Ezekiel next year, right? No. So that's what I tell you. That's, that's my challenge to you. It's great that we read it, but we need to continue to reread it and reread it, reread it.